I hope you are thirsty for more of God and his grace. Um, if you are, you have this promise that he will quench your thirst. As you sit and as you are still and as you listen to what he wants to say to you, um, we're going to look at Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. So if you have a Bible, you can turn in your Bible to Romans 6, 1 to 14. If you don't, it's printed in your order of worship. Um, this is going to be the last message on Romans for this year. Then we're going to start Advent next, next week. Um, we'll be doing a series on Isaiah 9. Um, so if you want to get a head start, feel free to read through Isaiah 9 and uh, reread it. Um, we're going to be meditating on that for the four weeks of Advent before Christmas. And then we'll return to this in, in January. Um, but we've, we've been looking at, as we've looked at the book of Romans, we've been seeing how um, in the first few chapters, Paul made his case uh, for the fact that every single person throughout the entire world, um, we're all unrighteous. We've all sinned against God. And, and our unrighteousness cuts us off from God. It only brings judgment and separation and emptiness um, but he's also made an impassioned case for the fact in, ver- in chapters 4 and 5 that um, in order to become righteous, um, it's, righteousness isn't something that we achieve, but it is something that we receive from him. The only way that we find righteousness, the only way that we find God is by receiving the gift of his grace, the gift of his love, through the work of Jesus Christ. And, and we need to trust in him. We need to believe. It's about faith. And so if we trust in him, then we will be justified. We will be righteous. He will look at us as righteous with his favor, no matter how messy our lives are, no matter how much of a mess we've made of our life today. He still delights in us and loves us because of Jesus, not because of us. And, uh, and that's what... Paul's been talking about, Paul's been talking about how no matter how big our sin is, God's grace is greater. It abounds more than our sin. And so the natural question for some people, and when you hear that, that God's grace is always greater than our sin, is this. Well, then I guess it doesn't matter if I sin. It doesn't matter how I live. I can just continue sinning. I can just continue living the way that I, I, I want to live and not worry about growing or becoming a better person because God's going to love me no matter what. And that's, this is uh, the question that Paul answers here. He begins to answer in Romans 6. So listen to God's word as I read. It's Romans 6, verses 1 to 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin 
once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would now take your truth and that you would open our hearts to receive it, that you would speak to us, that we would listen, that we would take in what you want us to understand and that you would change us by your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Are we going to be graded on this? Are we going to be graded on this? That's, that's the question um, I often heard classmates ask, or I have, you know, often asked it myself. I remember in high school or um, maybe even in college, sometimes a, a teacher would hand out a, a worksheet or an assignment or a project, or maybe you'd have a substitute, and the teacher would have left something with the substitute and gave you, you know, something to do. And uh, that was often a question that was on everybody's mind. Are we going to be graded on this assignment. And essentially what we were all asking is, how hard do I have to try? Or can I just crumple this up and you know, practice shooting in the basket, the trash can across the room? That's what we're really asking if we're gonna be graded on this, right? Um, I, I think there's a similar temptation when we begin to understand the grace of God. There's a similar temptation for us when we really understand God's grace. If we really understand if God loves me, as me, with all of my baggage, with all of my failures, with all of my sin, and if he's going to love me, if he's going to continue to love me because Jesus died for me, if he's going to love me because of Jesus, not because of me, then why does it matter how I live? Why does it matter if I try to become a better person? You know, If Jesus has died for me and God's going to love me, whether or not I eliminate all the areas of of self-centeredness in my life, then why not just like lean into my self-centeredness? You know, unapologetically live as I'm used to living and not worry about it and just enjoy God's grace. Even, Even think about how big God's grace is because of how much he's forgiven me. Why not just lean into it? This is the question, the rhetorical question that Paul asks here because he knows it's on some, at least some people's minds as he's explaining how big God's grace is, right? He, he asks this question in verse 1, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Are we to continue just living life the way we want to live it because God's going to love me no matter what, because God's grace is bigger. It's bigger. And, and this is how he answers this question. I, I, I want to I just focus on two questions this morning. Um, why should I care about living how God wants me to if I can't fail? Why should I care if I can't fail? You know, Because when God looks at me, he sees the perfect record of Jesus. So that's, that's good news. I can't fail now, right? So how, why should I care about how I live? That's the first question. The second question is, what should I do? What should I do? So why should I care and what should I do? Um, well, so first of all, how, why should I care about how I live if 
God is completely satisfied with me no matter what. Well, there's one reason, I think, that he, he really focuses on throughout this entire passage that, that should move me to truly care about who I am and who, I'm a, and who I am becoming. And if I'm growing as a person to become a better person, to become a person that God, you know, wants me to be. And it has everything to do with what Paul, I think, describes as unity with Christ. Being joined, connected to Jesus. That's what so much of this passage is all about. That's what he's talking about when he starts initially talking about baptism. In verse 3, he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He's talking about baptism here, and, and he's referring to, you know, when, when a person becomes a Christian, we baptize them. And, and some, some, in some um, churches, you, you dunk them underwater. Some churches, you pour water on top of them. We're not exactly sure how they did it back then. But one of the things that, that baptism symbolized is, is this new creation that we are in Christ, that we are joined to Jesus. There's some supernatural thing that happens when we believe in Jesus, where we are now in Jesus. We are united to Jesus. He continues talking about being united, right? In verse 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Paul is saying, you, you are united to Jesus. You are connected to Jesus. Your life is bound up with Jesus' life. So what does that even mean? Well, what it means to be united to Jesus means that everything that is true of him is true of you. Everything that he has accomplished, you can consider as having accomplished yourself. Everything that he has won, you have won. That's what it means to be united to Jesus. I've heard one pastor explain it this way. Um, let's say there's a, an entrepreneur that, that spends their life just working and working and working hours and hours and hours to build up their empire, you know, of all sorts of different companies and businesses. And, and, they, and they're incredibly wealthy. And they have, like, everything they could possibly want at their fingertips. They live a life of luxury. And then that person ends up deciding to get married. The person who marries them has done nothing to amass that great wealth. And yet by legally uniting themselves to that other person, everything that person has becomes theirs as well. You know, they enjoy the mansion. They enjoy the yacht. They enjoy all of the wealth, even though they haven't done anything to work for it. It's theirs because they're united to this other person who's done it all for them. In a similar way, when you come to believe in Jesus, your life is united to his. So everything he has is yours. Everything he has done, you have done. And that's what Paul continues to talk about here, especially when it comes to Jesus' death and his resurrection. Just as Jesus died and rose again, you have died and rose again. And, and, this, and this is important in a couple different ways. He, he talks about how Jesus died to sin here. He died to sin. Why did Jesus die? Well, Jesus died to take upon himself the judgment for sin, the judgment for all of our sin. He took upon himself the condemnation for our sin. And so sin doesn't have to be um, punished any longer for those who are in him. 
If you have believed in Jesus, then you are in him. You died just as he did to sin. Your sin has been paid for. Your sin, the, the judgment that you deserve is done with, past, present, future. And so you are forgiven. You are free from condemnation because you are united to Jesus. Okay, but there's more to it than that. There's more to it than that. He also talks in verse 6, he says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So what he's talking about here is that before a person becomes a Christian, their life is dominated by sin. It is controlled by sin. It is enslaved to sin. We have no choice but to obey our sinful, self-centered nature. And this doesn't mean that we all look as horrible and as wicked as possible. It, it means that even, even the most religious people, deep down inside, the thing that we are obeying, that we are obeying is we're looking out for ourselves. We want what's best for ourselves. And so... What Jesus did when we die in him is, is he also broke the power that sin has over us. It says we would no longer be enslaved to sin. He, he brought the, the body of sin to be, to be, done, to, to be nothing. So, so in a sense, when, when we are in Christ, his death accomplishes a break for us with our old life, with the old me with the me that is controlled by sin. It means that I don't have to be controlled by sin anymore. Sin doesn't have that power over me that it once did. This doesn't mean that I, I now am not able to sin anymore. This doesn't mean that I, I, I don't have to listen to sin, but it means that I don't, I mean, it, this means that I don't have to listen to sin. It, it, it doesn't mean that I can't listen to sin. It means that I don't have to. The power of sin is broken over my life. And, I, and, and there's, there's no more old me anymore. There's a new me. And the new me is very much connected to the risen Jesus. It says Jesus rose from the dead. It, it talks a lot about Jesus, you know, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So, so because we are united to Jesus, we are also united to him in his resurrection. How did Jesus rise from the dead? There's this immense power that enabled him to rise from the dead. The power of God, the power of the Spirit, the supernatural principle of life pulsing through him. That says death no longer has any mastery over him, no longer has any control over him. Well, guess what? If you believe in Jesus, your life is bound up with Jesus' life and, and this principle of life-giving power to make you different. And so not only do we have an opportunity to start living differently, a life that is, that is radically connected to God in a way that we couldn't before, but we should expect to live differently. We should expect to see the power of God displayed in the way that I live, in the way that I, I respond to life, in the way that I inter interact with other people. I should expect to see the power of God, the power of the Spirit pulsing through my life to make me more and more like the living Jesus because I'm joined to him. 
And so it has everything to do with being united to Christ. That's why I should care. If you, have, if you are believing in Jesus, if you trusted in Jesus, then your life is bound up with Jesus. This is the reality. Even though it, it's hard to believe it sometimes as you look around you, as you look inside of you, this is the reality. And so what should we do? What should we do as a result of this? Is this? If this is what is true, what should we do? And he gives us a couple things to do. The first thing he tells us to do is in verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It starts with how we think. It starts with how we consider ourselves. It starts with, with, with remembering who we really are, remembering the truth. Remembering what is true about me, that I am united to Jesus, that I have died, that the old me isn't here anymore. There's a new me here now. It starts with remembering who I am. Because it's, it's really, really easy to forget who we are. When a person becomes a Christian, it's easy to forget these things that are true of us, what, what God has done, the immensity of his love, and the power of his spirit working in us. It's easy to forget that the reality of who I am is a person who is first and foremost connected to Jesus before I am anything else. It's so easy to forget. There's a, a pastor in England um, who was named Martin Lloyd-Jones who would often say, the reason that we sin, after a person becomes a Christian, the reason that we sin is because we forget who we are. We need to remember because it's all too easy. It's all too easy to just continue living consistently with the old self, the self that is controlled by sin. That's the most comfortable thing for us all to do. There's a, a movie that came out about 10 years ago, maybe eight years ago, called Room. I don't know if any of you guys have seen it, but it was a movie about this young girl who was kidnapped by this wicked man, and then um, he kept her in a shed in his backyard, and she gave birth to a child while she was there. And um, so she and her son, named Jack, lived in this little shed in this backyard. Their entire lives spent in this little, probably like 10 by 10 room. And this little boy, Jack, he grew, he was about five years old, and, and he'd spent every single day of his life in that little shed. That's all he knew. And then eventually, throughout the movie, what happens is they, they, they make a plan to escape, and they succeed, and they escape this guy. And they return to her parents. And so they go back to living with her parents. And a big part of the movie is them figuring out how to, how to, how to deal with all of the, the trauma and the wounds that they've experienced and, and how to adjust to life now, life of freedom. And, and, and one of the things that's, that's interesting, as you see, is, is that they're now living in this big suburban home and, and they have you know, a, a backyard that, that Jack can go play in with other kids on the street and everything. But several times in the movie, it shows Jack just playing in the closet with Legos. Because that's where he's most comfortable. That's what he's used to. When he could be outside exploring, living, free, he just spends his time in a dark closet. And I think that's a picture of, the, of us when it comes to our habits, our self-centered habits, our, our tendency to live primarily for ourselves and our desires it's most comfortable to do that. But that's not who we are anymore. That's not who you are. If you've come to believe in Jesus, you are different. You are new. 
there's a story that's told about St. Augustine, the church father from the 5th century, and I'm not sure how true it is, but, uh, but it tells the story of after he became a Christian, he was walking down the street one day, and, um, and his old mistress, or an old mistress of his, was walking down the other side of the street, and she recognized him, and she's like, Augustine, Augustine, come on, hang out. Let's spend some time together. And Augustine's ignoring her, and he, he just tries to ignore her and ignore her and ignore her. And she, she keeps yelling. She keeps badgering him. She's like, Augustine, come on. It's me. Don't you recognize me? It's me. And Augustine then finally turns, and he says, yeah, I see. But it's not me. It's not me. I'm different. I'm not the same person that I used to be. And that's the reality for every single person who's come to believe in Jesus. You are not the same person that you used to be, that, that your self-centered sin wants you to be. And we need to remind ourselves of that, that that's what is true. That's what's most true about me, that my life is bound up with the living Jesus. I should expect to see more of him in and through me. And so the second thing that we need to do is in verses 12 and 13. It says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. This is the second thing we need to do. We need to remember who we are. The second thing we need to do is we need to surrender all that we are to him need to present ourselves, every single part of who we are, every single physical part of who we are, every single just area of our life, we need to present it to God. Instead of presenting these things to our self-centered desires, we need to present them to God as instruments of righteousness, as his instruments to use. I think that this is really key. You know, it says, um, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. One of the things that we need to realize is that growing as people, becoming the people that God wants us to be, isn't just about generally becoming nicer, generally becoming more loving or kind or patient. Um, those are all good things. But it has to do with becoming instruments, seeing ourselves as instruments of God, seeing ourselves as, as those who God wants to use in the lives of the people around us. Seeing our lives as, as having real purpose, God's purpose, you know? This is what it means to live, to, to present. He, he wants us to present ourselves to him so that he might use us in the lives of our friends, in the lives of the people that live next door to us, in the lives of the people that we work alongside of, in the life of our spouse, in the lives of our children. How does God want to use you it's not just about trying to be a little nicer. It's about figuring out what does God want to do around me in the lives of the people around me. And then, of course, all of those things are probably part of it, becoming more loving and patient and sacrificial and giving and gracious. But that's a big question to ask. You know, how does God want to use me in the life of my kids, in the life of this person that I just met? How does God want to use me? And so he calls us to surrender ourselves to him as his instruments to use. Um, and I think there's another thing to think about here. Um, this passage, he's, he's encouraging us to, to not continue living in sin, right? He's encouraging us to not, to not continue letting sin reign 
in our lives, right? I think another, another thing that helps us understand what it means to offer ourselves to God and to grow as people and to live, walk in newness of life is to really understand what does it mean to let sin reign? What does it mean to continue in sin? And I think a lot of us generally have a really limited idea of what that looks like. For a lot of us, I think a lot of Christians tend to think that, you know, when you become a Christian, to continue in sin means to keep saying bad words, you know? So, so as long as I, I, I stop swearing, you know, I'm making real progress. As long as I stop, it, it's about cutting things out of your life, you know? That's what, that's what, you know, it means to break free from sin and walk in newness of life. It's about cutting out bad words. It's about cutting out, you know, certain people that I shouldn't hang out with or certain places that I shouldn't go or certain things that I shouldn't watch, right? It's, it's, about, it's about cutting those things out. And as long as I'm doing that, then I'm, I'm really, you know, walking in newness of life. But that is, that is so tiny a part of it. To walk in newness of life is actually to, to actually add more things into your life. It's actually to add more things in, more, more acts of, of generosity and sacrifice and radical love for the people around me. That's what it looks like to walk in newness of life. That other view is like so small and tiny. I mean, honestly, I'd rather have a person who swears like a sailor, but who is laying down their life every day for the people around them, than a person who never says anything, you know, that you'd like flinch at, but who just, you know, judges everybody around them and thinks of themselves as perfect and self-righteous, right? And so we need to, to, to break our minds free from this limited understanding of what it means to continue in sin and to walk in newness of life. To walk in newness of life is to expect something huge and big, a work of God in my heart to serve the people around him for his sake. And again, it has to do with offering ourselves to him every day of our lives, offering every area of ourselves, surrendering every area of ourselves to him, surrendering my hands and what they do, my feet and where they go, surrendering my heart and what it wants, surrendering my dreams, surrendering my agenda, surrendering my plans, surrendering this moment, surrendering everything. Think about it. God, how do you want to use it? How can I be your instrument right now? has to do with surrendering the big things in life, but it absolutely has to do with surrendering all sorts of little things, even the things that seem really insignificant. Actually, if we probably want to just focus on the momentary, just the moment-by-moment, little insignificant things, if we can focus on surrendering those things, it probably it gets a little easier to start thinking about how we can surrender the big things as well. This past uh, week, I was sitting in my office, and I was doing something really important. I was studying this passage, um, trying to get ready for this message, and, and, and I was studying really hard, and, you know, um, I, I, as I'm sitting there, I hear some, some voices. I hear a voice, kind of a muffled voice that's coming from outside the building, and, and I could tell it was coming from, like, just outside the windows over here in the grass, and um, I hear it's, 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 it's a woman, it sounded like an older woman talking to somebody else. And, uh, and then I, and I figured out who, who it was. It was there's, there's, an, there's an older woman who brings a little child here on, almost on a weekly basis. And they come over and they play on the playground. Um, almost every week they're here. 
And, uh, and so I, I heard her talking to this little boy. She's like, oh, no, you should have been more careful. Should have been more, we can't get it. Sorry. And, and, and that's all I heard. I was like, I knew exactly what happened. You know, the kid had some kind of toy or a ball, and he'd thrown it into the window well, right? And there's no way that she was going to climb down there and get it. And he's way too small to climb down there and get it. And I'm just thinking to myself as I'm studying, I'm like, ah, too bad. <laughs> that kid's got to learn. You know? What can you do? And uh, thankfully, I thought that for about a minute. And then I'm like looking at this passage and I'm like, that's the old me talking. That's the old me, you know? Um, kind of wrapped up with what I am doing as the most important thing, oblivious to the needs, even the small little needs of other people. And I'm like, this lady and this child need to know that people that are associated with church are eager to serve her and help her, even with something as small as this. So I got up and I surrendered that little moment. This is a small little thing, right? And I walked out there and I climbed down into the window well and got the kid's ball and gave it to him. Um, you know, I didn't do anything hugely significant. I didn't like share the gospel with them or anything at that moment, but I just served them and got them the ball and loved them, right? I think I was God's instrument in their lives at that moment, as small as that was. I think we need to get in the habit of looking at these little small moments and figuring out how can I surrender this? How can I surrender this for this person, for these people right now? Well, after we celebrate communion um, this morning, we're going to close with the song, All I Am. And uh, this song gives us an opportunity to, do, to, opportunity to do just that, to surrender everything to God as we sing to him. And one of the things that I love about this song is that it doesn't just say, Lord, I'm going to surrender this to you. But it also is a song, the, the words remind us that as we surrender to God, what we're surrendering to a God who is abounding in grace. Because it talks about how, you know, take these hands, I know they're empty. I know they're empty, but I know you can use them. I take these feet, I know they stumble, but I also know that you use the weak. You use the weak. This is what the grace of God is all about. I talked about the grace of God last week, right? The grace of God is his, is his love and his compassion and his presence and his power that is moving toward us, this massive goodness moving toward us, not because we've earned it, but because of Jesus, because Jesus has earned it for, it, for us. And we need to get in the habit of, of expecting the goodness of God to be moving towards us, the power of God to be moving towards us and using us. And it's in light of that that he calls us to surrender to him. To surrender to him, to see how he will fill our hands, our empty hands. How he will use our stumbling feet. How he will demonstrate his power in our imperfect and, and limited ability to love. This is what it means to be under grace. You see yeah, the, the, the very last line in the, in the passage here, he says, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. To be under law is to be constantly measuring myself by what I'm supposed to do, 
by, you know, I, I, I should do this, I have to do this, or else, I, or else not, God's not going to love me. That's what it means to be under law. To be under law is to be, to be saying, I, I have to accomplish enough so that I'm worthy enough. And the only thing that leads to, that Paul reminds us of, it leads to condemnation. We're under grace. We have been pulled close by a God who loves us deeply and who is excited to demonstrate his power, especially as we surrender to him. As we surrender to him, as we seek to live as his instruments, that is exciting to me. That is exciting to me. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to see the glory in surrendering to you. Father, we, help, we pray that you would help us to see the reality of, of your grace and what you have done to, to unite us to your Son. To know that we are no longer who we used to be, but but we can be someone beautiful and glorious and full. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We now have an opportunity to, to confess our sin to God and, and our desire to live and walk in newness of life as we approach the Lord's table. We're going to pray the prayer that's printed in your order.